The Haunted UK podcast is produced and released in stereo. Listening through an environment such as headphones or stereo speakers will ensure you get the best experience. Ireland Crimes and Mysteries. Welcome to Ireland Crimes and Mysteries, the podcast that delves deep into the haunting true stories of Irish crimes and unexplained disappearances. From the pages of history to the recent past, I bring you the compelling narratives that have both shattered and fascinated the Emerald Isle. Join me every fortnight on Sunday evenings at 7pm Greenwich Mean Time as I embark on a journey to uncover a different story each time. With the help of family members and friends in some episodes, I paint a vivid picture of who these individuals truly were their aspirations for the future and the deep love they shared with their loved ones before everything changed forever. So mark your calendars and join me, your host Newells, and follow my channel, Ireland Crimes and Mysteries, in order to never miss an episode. Together, let's shed light on the lesser known aspects of Ireland's past and explore the mysteries that still haunt its present. So keep your eyes open and your mind curious. And don't miss out on a single episode of Ireland Crimes and Mysteries, part of the Spreaker Prime Network and also available on all major podcast platforms. You can also follow me on my socials over on Instagram, Facebook, X, formerly known as Twitter, and TikTok to keep up to date with all my latest stories. Ireland Crimes and Mysteries. Here at Haunted UK Podcast Towers, we're committed to giving you high-quality, great episodes time after time after time. But this takes a lot of effort in research, writing, editing, recording, mixing, mastering and publishing. We don't have a fancy production company or a bank of scriptwriters or a large budget to keep everything going. We are a fully independent podcast. If you'd like to help the show, then why not get over to Coffee and search for the Haunted UK podcast, where you can subscribe to give just £3 per month, the price of a coffee, or as much as you like. If you'd rather not sign up for a monthly subscription, then you can simply make a one-off donation. Again, as little or as much as you like. This really helps the show with our website, coffee membership, merchandise, equipment, as well as other financial commitments. So if you feel that you'd like to help keep the lights burning, the wheels turning and the stories rolling, then why not consider getting over to coffee and donating to the show? That's K-O hyphen F-I and search for the Haunted UK podcast. Thank you. And here are the names of the amazing people who have donated to the show recently. They are Donna Packer and last but not least, Brian Abraham. We also have some exciting new merchandise available on our website, including mugs, mouse mats, drinks bottles, bags, t-shirts, hoodies and even bottle openers. Get yourself over to www.hauntedukpodcast.com to check out our Etsy shop. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Now, without any further delay, let's get this episode started. A little rattled, a little unnerved, Ken left to stay at East Green for the night with Debbie. As he left, he noticed the chalk etching on the wall. What are you scared of? Ken, Deb, Peter, it read. Ken and Debbie quickly made a grab for the door. The truth was, he wasn't sure who or what he was scared of, and that was proving a problem. And although Ken may not have known what to be fearful of, he knew this fear was a thing, something tangible that stalked his floorboards, made footprints on his walls, and was closing him down. This is episode 47 and this is the Haunted UK podcast where we return for the final instalment of this strange tale. This vortex of time where different eras and lives are no longer chronological but are side by side and often collide as they all seek to live in what's known as the vertical plane. At the end of part one, we left this maelstrom of a mystery, this tangle of wires. At centre stage are Ken Webster and his partner Debbie Oakes, who live in and are renovating Meadow Cottage in Doddleston, Cheshire. Peter Trinder then becomes involved. He is Ken's colleague at Howarden School, a much-respected English teacher with a passion for Shakespeare, and with it, a robust interest in early modern English. It was the mid-1980s, a time before the internet. Ken borrowed the BBC microcomputer from the school. Initially, this was brought into the cottage for his friend Nick, so she could work on some comedy scripts. But soon, something else dominated the screen. Messages from Lucas a 16th-century farmer who claimed that the cottage was his home. An affectionate correspondence formed between Lucas and Ken, Deb and Peter. Amongst all of this, like the renovation work, 
a haunting was building in the cottage. Poltergeist activity was slowly becoming apparent, and now, at this point in the story, this curious, rather sweet communication between them all was turning sour, perilous. Lucas was under house arrest, suspected of witchcraft, sorcery. He fears his execution is imminent. And to make matters even more confusing, Ken, Debbie and Peter have discovered that he's not really called Lucas, that he's been using a false name and what's more, we learned that Lucas's computer, his box of lights as he terms it, was actually delivered by someone, somebody who Lucas calls 2109. And at the very last moment of part one, we left Ken, just daring to type 2109 into the void of this strange portal of a monitor. And, rather unexpectedly, terrifyingly, he received a reply. Ken, Deb, Peter, we are sorry that we can give you only choices. One that you either have your predicament explained in such a non-rhyme way that you may have instant understanding but cause what should not to be to happen. Or two, try to understand that you three have a purpose that shall in your lifetime change the face of history. We, 2109, must not affect your thoughts directly but give you some guidance that you will allow room for your destiny. All we can say is that we are all part of the same God, whatever he, it, is. Although this first message seems relatively benign, even beginning with an apology, there was something Ken intuitively didn't like about it. What you can't see on a podcast, of course, is that the spellings of the 2109 message were grossly incorrect. It immediately felt bogus to Ken. Perhaps it was the errors, the errant angry capital letters, shouting at him, which provoked the teacher in Ken into a rage. It's easy to picture him storming across the room, hands on his head in frustration, seething through gritted teeth. It's a hoax. A hoax. It has to be. Someone is having me on here. This first message from 2109, although odd and frustratingly cryptic, is actually rather kindly and warm compared to what's to come from them further down the line. And it will turn out that Ken was right to trust his instincts. Something wicked was in the air. But more from 2109 a bit later. Because at this point... Lucas's life was in danger. He was under house arrest. And Ken and Deb, as well as being unnerved by this new message from 2109, were panicked about what could happen to Lucas. They felt responsible somehow. Even though Lucas said someone had delivered the computer to him, Ken and Deb still felt that it was they who had unwittingly placed this box of lights in his home. They could clearly imagine the shockwaves a contraption such as this could bring about in a 1540s rural community. In a time where just living by yourself 
being slightly out of step could get you questioned, ducked, and burned. A big, strange box emitting eerie green light with strange words then must have seemed like the devil himself was jigging outside the cottage door, waving to all and sundry. So Ken and Deb imagined prospects were likely bleak for poor Lucas. However, if you remember at the end of part one, Ken asked Lucas to send the message which was first on his computer screen when he received it from this stranger. Somehow, Lucas did manage to send this original message, and as expected, it was just as baffling as Ken and Deb's first message, the lines fragmented and strange. The mysterious 2109 figure who Lucas said delivered the computer apparently told Lucas that the message on the screen held a clue which will one day save his life. Could this, then, be a chance of help for breaking Lucas out of his prison? This message read, My goodly friend, here is my verse, but I think you will make no sense of this thing. I write it for a record. Many a year ago since your day, this knack is not incitement to evil, but the opposite of that. An angel of good fortune for those who shine, who nonetheless you have seen, will cause the box of lights to be no more. Such conduct will be your correction. For an easy death is near for a friend of a wise man who chooses. The foul man must see the king to tell him of the cat that frightened a mouse and cure your sickness. Each of you men that have understanding, I do not doubt that your prayers shall be answered so that you may teach wisdom unto the foolish. Be wary, my friend, of your lust. The pudding may burn. This message was a grenade to Ken, Debbie, and Peter's thoughts. Who was this angel of good fortune? Was he the person that brought the computer to Lucas? And the message suggested that this being will eventually stop this communication. So it seems that this angel, this visitor could be in control of the communication between them. It also states that the computer is a force of good and not evil. The mention of the word chooses perhaps eerily links to 2109's reply, quote, we can only give you choices, end quote. It did all feel connected somehow. And of course, if we go back to the bizarre message Ken and Debbie first receives where it says, Pussycat, Pussycat, went to London to seek fame and fortune, we can see echoes of this in Lucas's message. The foul man must see the king to tell him of the cat that frightened the mouse. Both seem to allude to the nursery rhyme, Pussycat, Pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to visit the Queen, which was likely written in the early 19th century, just to throw another era into the mix. Far from the vertical plane, this story, this plane feels far more curved, irregular, haphazard than anything indicative of straight lines and verticality. But what did Lucas's first message mean? This going to London and seeking the king. 
Peter wondered if this could be the answer to Lucas's imprisonment, the clue that will save his life. Lucas's message mentioned, the foul man must see the king. Peter surmised that this must mean Foulhurst, the local sheriff that Lucas had mentioned in other messages. After doing a bit of research, Peter put forward an idea about a bishop man, again someone who Lucas had mentioned in earlier messages. According to Peter, he was a real-life historical figure, a bishop who had risen quickly in the ranks, so much so that he was an advisor in King Henry VIII's inner circle. Crucially, Peter found out that Mann wrote a letter to a Bishop Blocking, and Bishop Blocking was the spiritual advisor to the Maid of Kent. Now, the Maid of Kent was Elizabeth Barton, a prophet of sorts, who provocatively predicted that King Henry would die if he married Anne Boleyn, and of course mentioning death in the same sentence of a monarch was tatamount to regicide, treason. Elizabeth Barton was likely a vehicle for anti-Reformation figures of the time, those of the old faith, and as these people gathered around her offering their support, her prophecies were becoming acutely political. Anyway, Blocking was her spiritual advisor, and here's the thing. Bishop Mann wrote to Blocking, offering his support. In the letter, he writes, Beg me to accept me as your spiritual advisor and ask then prayers of Elizabeth Barton to mortify herself and live only for Christ. It wasn't a pretty or gentle end for Elizabeth Barton. At only 28 years old, she was hanged on the 20th of April 1534 with her head firmly placed on a spike along London Bridge. The only woman to receive such an honour in history such was King Henry's rage and loathing for her. Her five supporters were also hanged that day, and chief among them was Bishop Edward Blocking. Man, at this time, continued to serve the king quite closely. Peter argued that, quote, this, this letter, end quote, could be the smoking gun, his bargaining chip, the key for Lucas to finally leave his prison. If Falhurst could somehow offer this information to the king for Lucas's pardon and release, it could be the answer, as mad and implausible as it all seemed. In much haste, Ken typed to Lucas explaining their theory to which he replied that he was unaware of such matters, but he would tell Falhurst. It was his only hope now. After a few agonizing days, Lucas eventually replied, sounding resigned, explaining that all was lost. He could not get to the sheriff. No one, not even the guards barring his door, would even look at him or listen. Condemned a witch and accepting his fate, Lucas, in his message, gives his friends his final words, asking them to write a book about this glitch in time they were all experiencing. He signs off, Farewell, my good friends. May God receive you and long live Oxford. It was an emotional plea, a turbulent farewell. Ken, full of anguish, gripped his hands and fought back the tears, shouting, Oh, Lucas, at an empty screen. 
With no sign of Lucas, Ken mournfully set about resuming life. Exam season was starting and life was busy, but he wasn't really interested. Grieving and in turmoil, he set about walks most days, desperately thinking about what he could do, but understanding that it was probably too late. Building work on the cottage had resumed, and their friend Dave Lovell was giving them a hand. One day when Ken popped in to see Sean, Dave Lovell's wife, there was a phone call. It was Dave. He said he'd found some weird writing under the table, and he couldn't work out what it was. It was in a language he couldn't understand. Ken raced back to the cottage. There, in chalk, was a message addressed to Peter. In Latin. Peter, too, made a mad dash round, and in the evening all of them stared at the message. Scratching their chins, Peter managing to translate it. And wait for it. It's quite the revelation. Peter, you ask too much. Furthermore, Lucas went to his death. He brought death upon himself. The God's will. The last word they couldn't quite make out, as the message was all bunched up. So, Lucas was dead then. And who wrote the message? They guessed it may have been Lucas's friend John, ignoring all the normal logic, of course, where it is perfectly normal for a chalked message in Latin in loopy handwriting to appear under your dining table. They started the computer up again, and yes, there was a new message. Eridescent. After a while, Ken realized that this was the missing word from the message, and it read, Dite Eridescent, meaning, The gods will root you out. Ken felt like this was a death threat. But from who? With this threatening chalked message, Ken now felt this menace was far from contained to the boxy screen on the kitchen table. The cottage felt arch somehow, its atmosphere prickly, and its usual snug soft chintzy charm suddenly sharpened into focus. The concrete dust had set thickly everywhere. The place was a mess. Death threats maybe lurked under all the tables. The vase of roses in the kitchen. Well, he couldn't see their bloom, their red petals, only their thorns. And the rooms felt small, the stone walls closing in. That's how it felt anyway. Home wasn't home anymore. An old friend he didn't recognize, like it had conspired with whoever was writing these messages. And of course, the building work didn't help with this but he was afraid this unease was something else. A warning, perhaps. Maybe a warning to look after himself. And 2109, with that strange reply, wasn't far from his mind. It was at this point Ken decided to dabble with 2109 again, like someone would with an Ouija board. He tentatively asked them just who the author of the chalked message was, and if they could tell him of Lucas's fate. The reply was a series of odd fragments. Your questions will be answered. Go to sleep. Alone. Not enough power. As established, Ken didn't like 2109. 
He didn't care for their arrogant, bullish tone. The poor spellings made him feel that the force behind it was more human than something extraterrestrial, demonic or angelic. But at the same time, Ken couldn't really stop thinking about them. He would never admit it. But you wonder if he was drawn to something of their mystic omnipresence, their power. Again, Ken begged them to disclose who they were and of Lucas's life and fate, and if they could reveal his true name. 2109 gave them this odd piece of information. Lucas W.'s father served on the King's Rose Bristol. A favour from the King brought wealth. Tell the King about the mouse. Ken was becoming increasingly frustrated by this idea about a mouse, and Peter really hoped that it wasn't a reference to the famous Tudor shipwreck, Mary Rose, because that would be too enormous, too obvious, too cringeworthy. What is interesting is that amidst all their frustration, the poltergeist activity ramped up. Suddenly, a porting of objects, bits of copper pipes flying off everywhere, more random chalk writings on walls, which didn't seem connected to the messages on the computer. And then one day, on the 15th of May, Debbie called into the cottage after dropping Ken off at the school. She recalls one of the most scariest sights yet. She recounts. I dropped Ken off at school after spending the night at East Green. Then I drove over to the cottage to feed the cats. It was around 9am and it wasn't until I walked up to the path of the front door that I sensed something was very wrong. Perhaps it was the cats sitting on the garden wall watching me rather than circling my feet as they usually do which prompted this unease. I turned the key in the lock, pushed the door open and in the living room I came face to face oh my god with a six foot high pile of furniture instantly I took a step back out of that door and I slammed it shut I walked round to the back with the intention of looking through the window but I felt unable to do this for a time I dreaded to think what mayhem there might be when I did look it was clear that the kitchen had gone crazy too only now did I start to rationalise it was burglars or local kids perhaps then I remember what Ken had written on the computer last night and all that anger and frustration he felt. I ran round to the front of the house and in through the door. Trembling, I recovered the phone from the hearth, fumbled with the dial, rang Ken's school and left him an urgent message. Ken, it's me. You need to come home. Now. Then I rang Dave Lovell and got him to come straight down. Eventually, I gathered enough of my thoughts to examine the havoc. Everything movable in that room had moved towards the kitchen and was piled against the door. Chairs, bicycles, Dave's tool chest, some of the tiles pulled off the hearth. Up on the roof beam, the old copper pans had twisted on its axis and the handle was at an angle of nearly 90 degrees. It all feels a bit like the exorcist here, Except rather than heads turning at eye-popping unnatural angles, it's, well, saucepans. 
This poltergeist activity, whilst seemingly separate from the messages, paradoxically seemed to be deeply connected to them too. We've talked about poltergeist activity lots on this show, and many sources assert that it's energy, an energy with a life of its own, tricking and manipulating, living off raw emotions like anger, angst, emotion, vulnerability, all the feelings Ken seems to be emitting. It's noteworthy that Debbie remembered the emotion in Ken's message, his frustration, his anger. It's almost like Debbie is admitting there's a cause and effect. Perhaps somehow Ken did cause this. Remember also in part one, Debbie idly wondered if a crumb of her personality had broken off, that it was she who was causing it. In fact, I think she even says, manifesting it. It's never explicitly said, but at times in the book, Ken and Debbie's relationship seems a little less than smooth. There are moments where he blames Debbie, snaps at her for doing things wrong, and he's unhappy in his job. Debbie is stuck at home a lot, imprisoned maybe, a bit like Lucas. And there's perhaps another strange mirroring here. Lucas has a housemaid, Catherine, who is only 14. Someone he frequently shouts at with a snarly impatience. Debbie, at 19, is younger than Ken, who we think is in his late 20s at this point. And it could be said that at times he is similarly cantankerous towards Debbie. Like Lucas is to Catherine. The poltergeist factor begs further pondering, though. They are cruel entities that we possibly still know very little about. One question is this. Could Debbie, at 19, be a conduit for the poltergeist activity? As is often documented with such cases, it is often teenagers and young women who are at the centre of such phenomena, and with it, rather alarmingly, middle-aged men monitoring them, pestering them, looking for proof, the elusive witch-mark, if you like. Note such cases as Enfield, Alma Fielding, the Battersea Poltergeist. The list goes on. In fact, in many of these stories, a poltergeist often mimics, likes to trick, can take up numerous identities, whether it's Bill, Donald, and in Danny Robbins' Battersea Poltergeist, it even presents itself as a historical figure. So it's not difficult to see parallels here with this story in Meadow Cottage. And it begs another question. Could 2109 and Lucas, the relatively friendly, affable Lucas, all just be a poltergeist? Or is this too simple an explanation? Amidst all of this furniture-moving chaos, the scene was set and clear for SPR. Admittedly, they would need to tentatively step over some violently strewn furniture first. But SPR, as I'm sure you already know, is an abbreviation for the Society for Psychical Research. The Society was founded in 1882, at a time where Darwin's theory of evolution was rocking the very foundations of the Western Christian worldview, where science was finding much more of a foothold in households, and yet, incongruously, at the same time a new religion was forming. 
spiritualism, and it was crowding out Victorian parlours in its popularity. And it was at this collision point between two very different types of Victorian curiosity, their hunger for scientific inquiry, evidence and their thirst for magic, smoke mirrors, the spiritual, the promise of the dead being, well, undead, that the SPR was established. Their aim? To be the first scientific organisation ever to examine claims of psychic and paranormal phenomena. Their words. They wanted proof. And proof is what Ken, Debbie and Peter so urgently craved. Ken had been in contact with a John Stiles from the SPR over the phone. They talked at great length about the case. During the first conversation, Ken felt rather foolish, worrying that maybe he sounded rather unhinged in his retelling of these events, so unbelievable that they were. However, that wasn't the case. John was understanding, promising to send a field officer out to Ken and Debbie as soon as he could. And bear with me here, because there are a lot of Johns in this story. And so, a John Bucknell, the assigned field officer, rang one day that spring. Ken instantly warmed to him, even imagining the case to rock the paranormal world or indeed the world at large with their findings. One rainy May evening, two SPR officers turned up at Peter's house in Hawarden. John Bucknell dressed in cords and desert boots, and Dave Welch, tall, imposing, sombre, not easily impressed, bearded. They smiled uneasy at the door. Come in, come in, Peter warmly greeted them, John's stony face, so different to his friendly voice on the phone, really didn't seem too impressed. After cups of tea, strained small talk and too many cigarettes on John Bucknell's part, the serious pair turned their attention to Debbie. It seemed to them that these messages happened most frequently when she was at home. Debbie protested weakly. Well, I am at home a lot these days, but... They barely raised an eyebrow as they moved on to Peter. Academic. Shakespeare expert. Could he have written these messages? And finally, Ken. Until we can find further evidence and isolate you from the messages, you three are our main suspects. Sorry, John Bucknell added dryly. A drive to and tour of Meadow Cottage was suggested, and away they all went. The two men conducted a thorough search, noiselessly making notes as they went, concluding with Dave Welch triumphantly exclaiming, Aha! Does the loft space connect with the others in the row? Yes. Yes, it does, Ken said weakly, sheepishly. The cottage was not as secure as it could be. Yes, anyone could get in quite easily, he admitted to himself. Ken, Debbie, Peter felt like suspects, and worse still, they felt stupid. Clearly, this was simply an intruder with a vast knowledge of mid-16th century Cheshire societal customs. But let's face it, even that seemed ludicrous. It was fair to say the trio were beginning to doubt everything around them, including the fabric of time, 
but most definitely without question, their sanity. After some discussion, the SPR proposed that they would set up a listening post with microphones running through to the kitchen. After setting it all up, they would wait in the living room with Debbie, whilst Ken and Peter would wait in the Red Lion pub. Ken and Peter clearly getting the better deal here. All the windows and doors leading to the kitchen would be taped. Of course, nothing happened. No messages. Their two main lines of inquiry were as follows. 1. To see if this was the work of an intruder, and if they received a message at this time. This would eliminate that. And 2. To see if the computer was coded in some way. They asked Ken if anybody in the maths and computing department at his school was capable of doing this. Ken argued that this would be very unlikely, as he picked up a different computer each time and he didn't think anyone would have the know-how and technology to do this to one computer, let alone all of them. Frustratingly, nothing was found during this experiment. The SPR men left with a vague promise of returning to finish their report and to try some more experiments, but the whole experience left Ken and Debbie feeling rather deflated. They had this sense that they weren't believed, that Dave and John were hell-bent on proving otherwise to everything they claimed. Although Peter protested that this was actually the right and fair approach, and he welcomed it. It was around this time, and of course, after the SPR had left, that they received a message on the computer. Not from 2109, but from someone different. Someone with an actual historical record. Someone who could, perhaps, wield their power and authority to help them. Friend thy friend of Lucas, ye may call it Thomas my name if thee finds thys rightly. I am known unto all men of every ye manner in thy place. Lucas would be a goodly man, didst takes to ask me to tell the king of Henry man. I am also taken to wonder, what be thy question to the king so that I may tell him as he is asked? Thomas. Quickly, Ken asked him if he is the Sheriff Thomas Falhurst that Lucas had spoken of. Ken received a clear, solitary yea in response. As already mentioned, Sir Thomas Falhurst was the local sheriff at the time, and there really are historical records of him. If any of this was real, this was a real-life lifeboy in their quest to discover Lucas's fate. And what's more, the message also implied that Lucas was still alive. Ken was overjoyed. A series of messages fired between Ken and Falhurst, it transpired that Lucas was indeed alive, but imprisoned in a miserable dungeon of sorts and that a fellow called Grosner was desperately trying to buy the farm whilst he was locked away. It soon became apparent that Falhurst had a love-hate fascination with the Leems or Boist, as the 16th century figures in this story charmingly called the BBC computer, although rather amusingly, he was afraid of the evil entrapping his fingers if he used it, but at the same time desperately yearned to know more about the Boist treating it as if it was some kind of oracle. 
he chastised Ken, yet wanted to keep talking to him. Not quite sure if Ken was conduit of all things mystical, good, or if he should throw salt and holy water at the screen and condemn him as downright evil. Whatever the case, he wasn't quite prepared to part from the boist. One night, though, John, Lucas's friend, sent a message. Don't ask Valhurst for Lucas's name, for he will have him killed. He is kept alive, so that the leaves will still shine. It was clear Lucas's life still hanged precariously in the balance. The staff room at Hawarden School was alight with this story, with more teachers eagerly wanting to know more, and one teacher, a friend of Ken's, suggested that he go nuclear, so to speak, and threaten the corruption of Falhurst's soul if he didn't do something about Lucas. And as it goes, Ken and Debbie thought this was an excellent idea. And so this is what they did. His response? Ye most noble Peter, first I must know whom did tell ye of Lucas. If ye swear not to use ye power, then I shall bring Lucas within one round of the glass. I do beg ye forgiveness, but I meant to cause no harm to him. I shall do this, for ye be my friends. Thomas. And so with that, Lucas was back. Battle-worn but grateful, and the messages oddly resumed. To add further woe to the story, Lucas returned home unable to find Catherine, his housemaid. The 14-year-old Catherine was missing, and within days of returning home, he discovered she'd been found burnt at the stake, presumably for witchcraft. This was devastating for Lucas. Ken and Debbie were upset too. As the weeks rolled on, the poltergeist activity increased, this time with more copper pipe offcuts from the construction work in the cottage. They would fly out of nowhere through the air with such aggression and precision that it was quite frightening. They would all hear, and then a copper offcut would appear. Debbie even got hit in the face with one, causing a huge bruise. Dave Lovell, who was working on the cottage, mentions the offcuts in the vertical plane, adding that one of his tools, a bending spring, had become kinked. The computer itself was now frequently attacked. The monitor would be twisted or the keyboard moved. One day, Ken and Debbie saw two chalk outlines of shields on the kitchen floor, noises coming from the roof. What with the extremity of all the furniture being moved on the 15th of May, Ken thought it was worth asking Lucas if he was also experiencing the same. He replied that indeed he was. Things were being moved, and he thought Ken and Debbie were the likely culprits. Curiously, some of these messages about the poltergeist activity were deleted. Ken was sure it was 2109, and Lucas heartily agreed, speaking of his distaste for them. Lucas advised, My considered opinion is that we communicate privately when our disagreeable friends are not in our company. Lucas then suggested something very bold, that instead of using the leams, he would write to them using paper that very night. Lucas provided them with some very precise, 
quite frankly odd instructions to move the lemmes to a specific place in the kitchen, giving them old metrics such as eight hands here and Scanton there. Through Lucas's instructions, they found the place by the diamond glass window in the kitchen. Debbie then left a piece of paper on top of the monitor with a lump of charcoal she felt would be more recognisable to Lucas than a pen. Nothing really happened all morning. They left the kitchen and went out for a walk, both willing him to write. Later in the afternoon, there was nothing on the paper, but Lucas left a message on the computer which disturbed them further. Brother Ken, I am happy that we are by ourselves without 2109. Your leams sits in my dark chimney where the leams voiced first appeared with brightness and the person who made it work is here with me. Far from being alone to communicate with them, there was someone else with Lucas, the person who apparently delivered the computer. The question begs to be asked, who the hell was this? Lucas continued. Before I tell you what is the truth and my name, you must tell me what is your philosophy. I must be acquainted with your position because, my good friend, I think you know better than I do what might happen when this decision is taken. If ever a shiver was to cross Ken Webster's spine, I guess this was the moment. This was strange, unsettling. This other person who was apparently with Lucas and this demand to know his belief system. And what would happen when he finally revealed his name? Lucas's message implied that it would alter everything. Ken wrote back explaining how he didn't really understand his message or how to interpret what he was asking. But foremost, he asked, Who is with you? Trying to digest this message, Ken was lost in his thoughts and Debbie napped. But remember this fact because it's important. A little later, inexplicably, a note was written on the paper in cursive, loopy handwriting. In all honesty, in a way you would expect a ghost from the 16th century to write. It was extraordinary. In fact, we will post a picture of Lucas's handwriting from the vertical plane on the Instagram page. The note said, My friend, I have told Debbie the answer to your question. I think that she doesn't understand all that is spoken, but she has some facility with my words. Lucas. Perplexed, Ken quizzed Debbie about it, and she detailed a dream she had just about him, where Lucas explained to her that the Leems was brought by a man who was important. Strangely, Debbie felt rather sheepish telling this dream. She begged Ken not to tell Peter. She didn't think Peter would believe her, and I can understand why Peter would question this. I must admit, to me, the dream element does make the story less convincing. But as the saying goes, you just never know. And we certainly don't in this story. Ken and Debbie did show Peter the message the next day, 
and he was bowled over that he had actually written on paper. With lots of questions, they wrote Lucas a message on the computer and Lucas replied, again, on paper. This time, he penned or charcoaled a clue about his identity. They were getting much nearer to the truth and the facts that are discovered next are nothing short of extraordinary. You have my name in your book, I think. If not John, put Tom, and I think you will understand my name. It is also the place of Peter's house. What does this book of names and ages say about me? Love, Thomas. In a playful way, Lucas, or rather Thomas, had given a clue to his name, ironically signing his real name. As a side note, in later messages, Lucas or Thomas had begun to sign off his messages with the modern affectation of love possibly mimicking Debbie's style of writing. And in a moment, they had worked it out. Bingo! It was Thomas Howarden, one of the names actually suggested by the Brasenose College librarian, Robin Peedle, all those months ago. He wrote a list of names which Peter took away with him when he visited the college in Part 1. Howarden is where Peter lived. They looked again at Robin Peedle's notes where it said Harden, spelt H-A-R-D-N, or Hawarden, spelt H-A-W-A-R-D-E-N. Brasenose College Fellow in 1530, still in college, 1538. The dates did fit. The facts that followed were even more gobsmacking. In Robin Peedle's notes, it detailed that Thomas was expelled from the college for crossing out the Pope's name. Ken shared these details with Lucas, or Thomas, and he corrected him. He was actually expelled for refusing to cross out the Pope's name. After some further research by Robin Peedle at Oxford, among some dusty forgotten files, it was discovered that yes, this was the case. Lucas was correct. As a Catholic, this was something he could not do. A bold move in King Henry's time. But it did cost him. It was the reason he lived out the rest of his life in relative solitude on a farm in Cheshire. Interestingly, he still wanted to be referred to as Lucas, a name of his old tutor. Whilst Debbie's dreams are perhaps not convincing, these facts are... Although it has to be said, this story is still like a tide of belief and disbelief, often with Peter catching Lucas out with various bits of information which were incorrect. For instance, Lucas heard Ken openly shed a tear in the kitchen. He sent him some verses from the poem Wyatt to cheer him up. Peter pointed out to Ken that this verse had not been written in his time yet, and Lucas garbled something about hearing it from a learned travelling man. Very learned, it would seem. And so, the tide goes out. Ken's emotions at this point and a brief reference to what seems to be a depression is troubling too. Ken writes of his mood crashing after the highs of recent weeks and of the tumultuous events in those last few months. He writes, quote, I did not recognise myself, end quote, and imagines driving into a river with, quote, 
the waters showing no signs of passing, end quote. Clearly, these are deeply unsettling, disturbing thoughts demonstrating the strain on Ken's mental health. And it's understandable. No doubt these supernatural events, where no one believes you as you make no sense of anything, would definitely take its toll. But the energy seems raw here. As mentioned before, he doesn't seem to like his job. In fact, later in this year, he leaves teaching altogether for a research post. At Haunted UK Podcast Towers, we receive many stories of listeners' hauntings where their mood has altered, their energy drained, how they too barely recognize themselves. Is this what is happening here? Or if this is an entity tricking them, playing with them, is it feeding off this energy? The couple also got a puppy at this time who they called Lucas, and this is a tragic saga in itself. Despite being the apple of Debbie's eye and both loving and caring for it so much, the puppy became ill and died. And it's very hard to say what caused it. Likely simply just one of those unfortunate things in life, but the desperation and urgency during his illness and the potent unhappiness which followed did nothing to clear the air, only adding to the thick atmosphere of the home. It seemed nothing could flourish in the cottage. Lucas even wrote to Debbie a detailed letter expressing his condolences. But let's get back to Lucas's strange request to know of Ken's belief system and his worrying admission that he wasn't alone. And it does get stranger, if that's even possible. In his reply to Lucas, Ken asked him about the person who gave him the leams, and Lucas's reply was similar to what he said before about the person who first delivered the leams. My friend, the person is from your time, I think. Lucas did answer more about their questions about this mysterious other person who delivered the leams, but it posed more questions than answered them. In Chapter 20 of The Vertical Plane, Lucas does eventually reveal a bit more about him, but he writes it on paper. My brother Ken. The man who came to our house when I last spoke was a man called Juan. I asked him, if he had come to take the Leams boys away, he spoke straight away and said he had no want for the Leams, but it wasn't mine to offer. I could see that he was intending to stay, with both feet firmly planted here, so I didn't try to move him. He continued, Any mishaps that have befallen you are your own. You have no power over this thing for it is like a child without a caring family. It doesn't know the forces within its reaching arms. You and your brothers are in great trouble if you put the leans back on its own. Think well, but don't tell your fellows. This is why I haven't written on the leans. What do you think? What mishaps? Can we come to ill? Answer soon, Lucas. 
At this point, the disk drive had been further damaged by poltergeist activity, and Ken had put it in somewhere for repair, so Lucas or 2109 couldn't send a message out if they wanted to. And let's not forget our not-so-good friends 2109, who let me tell you, were livid that Ken, Debbie and Peter had found out Lucas's real name. And with the computer back and working, they typed with fury. Ken, Deb, Peter. We have reason to believe you have Lucas Wainman's true name. If this is correct, you must say so, so that we may rectify the problem immediately before it is accepted. You may now continue to write to Lucas to establish your responsibility to our experiments and towards a better understanding of time and its forces. 2109 At this point, Ken felt pretty exasperated and asked what the problem was, demanding that he should be able to communicate freely with Lucas. This made 2109 really angry, and a series of messages were fired off, screeching the importance of what they were doing, and how dare Ken question them, warning him that he is unable to understand the nature of their work, that Ken, Debbie, Peter and Lucas were all part of their experiment, and they were going to call down the messages between Ken and Lucas, and press pause, so to speak. The final message from 2109 in this exchange talked of two Lucases now running around because of their dabbling and that they would have to rectify it immediately. 2109 sent the following. You must help by giving every word uttered by Thomas Howarden from the second you received his true name. You must also state how much information you have on this man. Everything word for word. Avoid any other communication you may have with him. Desperation. Be quick. 2109 2109 reiterated that there were now two Lucas Wainmans running around. As a result, there was now mayhem in the space-time continuum. Ken wasn't quite sure whether to call their bluff, but something about the message unnerved him so he contacted Peter for advice. They decided to give 2109 a little information about Thomas. And a little rattled, a little unnerved, Ken left to stay at East Green for the night with Debbie. As he left, he noticed a chalk etching on the wall. What are you scared of? Ken, Deb, Peter. It read. Ken and Debbie quickly left. The truth was, he wasn't sure who or what he was scared of, and that was the problem. And although Ken may not have known what to be fearful of, he knew this fear was a thing, something tangible that stalked his floorboards, made footprints on his walls, and was closing him down. And the candidate for the chalked writing on the wall could have been absolutely anyone at this point. 2109, this one character... Lucas, the poltergeist. In the book, Debbie jokingly quips, Me? When Ken lists all of the suspects. Ken ignores this, 
but should we? Around this time, Ken asks 2109 if they could control the poltergeist activity, and they said they would try to dial it down slightly, going on to confirm that yes, there is a poltergeist in the cottage, and some of the phenomena is part of the communications, and that Ken will never be able to understand what a poltergeist is. They then provide a definition of a poltergeist, almost how you would ask Alexa today, Alexa, what is a poltergeist? And she would probably give a very similar answer to what 2109 offers Ken. Surplus kinetic energy projected by either one or more individuals or by storage channels within buildings and places where strong emotions such as frustration have been felt most common. At the start of this conversation about poltergeists, Ken is quite angry and surly with 2109, no doubt in reaction to being ordered around and 2109 halting the communications with Lucas. It's clear that 2109 are quite bemused by Ken's anger, perhaps even enjoying the reaction, or maybe just reacting in kind. The following exchange between them is interesting, though. This from Ken. 2109. Forget the gloom and doom and explain what you want as you are preventing us communicating with our friend. Of what harm is that? We love the fellow and he us. If you wish to help, please give your analysis of poltergeist phenomena. Beings of your ability should be less moody when confronted with us simple types. A little open communication goes a long way when cooperation is the issue. Dig, Ken and Debbie. 2109 replies, first of all mocking Ken's 1960s style dig comment. Dig? You are mistaken. We do not speak any gloom and doom, but possibly you refer to the forces that you yourself have unleashed against our better judgment. It is correct to assume that the poltergeist phenomena is present in the communications. Are they gaslighting Ken here, projecting the blame on him, or is he the conduit of the poltergeist energy? Has he unleashed a force? It's a theme 2109 enjoy making and presenting to Ken. Now, as already mentioned, 2109's writing certainly would not pass an English GCSE anytime soon. Their messages are littered with spelling errors. Their words are often spelt phonetically. On first reading, it almost feels like a group of poorly educated teenagers typing into the ether, laughing their heads off somewhere, even if this ether doesn't really exist at this point, but their messages really do have a sort of surly, superior, goading tone to it. They do not sound scientific or professional, or expert in the field of physics and tachyons as they so claim to be. In fact, many of their messages read like something out of a bad sci-fi novel. And they love to, rather immaturely, crassly tell Ken and Debbie that they are too simple to understand the science that they are using. But the spelling errors? What if these are purposely done? In one message, 
Ken accidentally leaves the caps on, which incidentally is how 2109 usually types, and they mock him for this error. We all make mistakes, eh, Ken? Mistakes, deliberately misspelt M-I-S-A-J-K-E-S, alluding that their mistakes are purposeful, a style, sending themselves up, enjoying the metaness of it all. Notably, when they provide a definition of poltergeist energy, they spell kinetic, K-E-N-E-C-T-I-C, kinetic using ken at the start of the word as a deliberate pun. What are they suggesting here? That again Ken's frustration, his energy is causing the disruption? Or is it just to provoke him? It's a point we keep coming back to. Around this time in September 1985, 2109 requests to speak to Dave Welch of Society for Psychical Research fame. Ask the man David what he thinks of conjectural tachyons and what are his theories of casualty. What answer does he have for its paradox? Cheers, 2109. Ken was aghast that they knew who Dave was. He was also slightly amused by their use of cheers. But he got in touch with Dave, whose interest was seriously piqued. 2109 again say that it's an experiment, but they are not in control of it, that they have tampered with some of the messages between Ken and Lucas, and they will stop communications with Lucas soon to end the experiment. Lastly, 2109 make it very clear to Ken that Lucas, or Thomas, is a real person living in the 16th century, but they say, unknown to him, he is not quite what he seems to be. What's interesting is that they desperately want to know more about this character, Juan. If you tell us who is Juan, then we shall give you 100% evidence for the people directly investigating your phenomena. Ken replied that Dave will be contacted, but he knows about as much as Juan as they do and he provides them with the little information Lucas has told them, that one wears a cape, has a greenish glow, and a humanoid aspect. 2109 seemingly love to summon people, much preferring Peter to poor Ken, who they judge to be too intellectually inferior to understand these great leaps of knowledge in physics they claim to possess. Peter sent them a long, flattering message, asking them in a reasonable way, to be, well, reasonable. In the message, Peter suggests that maybe 2109 are immortal, angels, and from another dimension, and concedes that in 1985, we'll never understand who they are and what they do. Cue an eye roll from Ken. However, flattery gets you everywhere, as 2109 are receptive to this idea, positively purring back a message. Peter, you are, without any exaggeration, a clever and cautious man. The use of the word dimensional has more relevance than you are given to believe. Dave Welch 
excited that he had been summoned, comes back to conduct another experiment, just for 2109. He has an idea of typing 10 questions on the computer, deleting them, and then sealing the kitchen off for 45 minutes, and then see if there is any response. Peter was irritated from the start, annoyed because Dave had mentioned that these messages could have been planted via the mains through an earth cable. Peter lost it at that point and asked him how on earth would an earth cable work then. Dave was lost for words. He couldn't give an explanation. They did have some luck with the 10-question experiment, though. 2109 did respond, not answering the questions, but making reference to them in the right order. Ken was elated at this, dancing as he practically shouted, This is not a hoax! That tide, again, was coming in. Dave, although impressed, still wanted to ask further questions. This time, though, he was notably fine with asking the questions over the telephone, rather than an elaborate ritual of sealing off access to the computer. He asked some mathematical questions about prime numbers and a Fermat's last theorem, which would go on to be solved, but in 1985 hadn't yet been worked out. 2109 absolutely loved the power they yielded. Their reply was conveniently cryptic. Yes, both questions can be answered. One directly, the other requires an understanding of a new conversion formula. Before we tell you, do you swear to grant us our wish? In response to this, Ken types, If it be in our power to do so, and that we do not lose our minds or souls or bodies to you. Ken was half-joking, but as it goes, 2109 were not. Or were they? Then let the man who is willing to lose these step forward. And... To lose your soul is to lose all. But surely this would not bother David. Call our bluff. And it's clever. Dave, a scientist, surely wouldn't be particularly flummoxed by this. Amusingly, Ken and Debbie were quite tempted to volunteer his soul, but thought better of it. They spoke to Dave, and funnily enough, he wasn't that keen. To me, this also mirrors how Ken and Debbie communicated with the sheriff, Thomas Falhurst, when they too threatened to corrupt Falhurst's soul. Perhaps 2109 were doing something similar, or mocking them. The image of laughing teenagers behind a screen somewhere again looms large. At the very end of September, John Bucknell from the Society for Psychical Research was back on the scene, this time with a different colleague called Jim, who specialised in ciphers, which Ken thought odd, as they weren't dealing specifically with numbers or such. Like a priest speaking to a demonic entity, John composed a message to 2109. He was stern, asking them to be reasonable and if they could show evidence that they have knowledge beyond our own, they may be able to put them in touch with someone who could help them. While waiting for a reply, they all sat around with tea, 
A nervous energy pervaded the room and John began to explain how, unfortunately, despite 2109 making references to the questions Dave had typed, they have concluded that this particular communication with 2109 was a hoax. It just couldn't be real. Not for the first time did Ken, Debbie, Peter have their mouths and eyes wide open in shock. What? This is ridiculous. I can't believe this. Is something along the lines Peter said as he marched across the room. John, over the brim of his teacup, tentatively explained their theory that someone stored the questions Dave had left for 2109 on the EEPROM. I don't even know what an EEPROM is, said Ken. It's possible that someone saw the questions that have been saved to it and someone at the school was able to decode it. That is actually possible, John stressed. An EEPROM is a type of read-only memory chip that can store or retrieve data when the power supply has been turned off. This is also what Dave had thought had happened to the questions. And John's next part of the theory is even more fantastical than the time continuum being distorted enough for a 16th century Cheshire farmer and 1980s schoolteacher to become pen pals, with alien-like beings possibly curating the whole affair. John set out a hypothesis that very sensitive microphones had been strategically placed, and then from the recordings, someone was able to decipher which keys from the keyboard were being typed. At this point, Peter was apoplectic with rage. I'm 99.9% sure this is a hoax, John said. It has to be. And that was that. But it wasn't quite, because Ken asked this. If they were so sure it was an EEPROM, why hadn't they taken their computer away and conducted tests? After a heated exchange, another experiment was arranged, this time for the 22nd of October. 2109 sent another cryptic message regarding this, explaining that they do not need a screen to read the messages. So the SPR agreed to use their own computers without typing anything on the screen. Frank Davies, a colleague at the school, was becoming more involved in the investigation and would be a witness at the experiment on the 22nd of October. 2109 were aware of this and wanted to know more about him and asked for the doctor's name. Frank amazingly agreed to tell them and then 2109 revealed Frank's entire medical history on the screen. The experiment on the 22nd of October was nothing but an unmitigated disaster, partly because of 2109 stalling. Strangely, no Dave Welch, but there was a new researcher on the scene, Nick Sowerby Johnson, and 2109 was suspicious. They didn't like him. Tell us his full name, they kept asking. Nick Sowerby Jones was about 35, brisk, dressed in dark clothing and appeared to be John Bucknell's superior. He asked direct questions and he took the computer away to check for any devices, which Ken was glad about. He set up the SPR computer and left the questions on a disk and not on the screen. It wasn't a particularly pleasant evening. Nick seemed irritable 
and really interrogated poor Frank Davies, who understandably felt uncomfortable. With no sign of 2109 answering any of the questions, Nick and John abruptly left. Frank mentions an earlier message from Lucas warning them about the SPR men and how the Leams could come undone. 2109 never did play ball and didn't seem to be able to answer the questions on the SPR computer, instead blaming Nick, putting forward an idea that he did something to the transmission when he stood in front of the computer. They kept asking for his full name, that they needed him to come back to talk to him and ask him if he installed the information correctly. It was a problem that could be easily fixed, they said, but he would need to come back. 2109 blackmailed Ken, offering to provide evidence that the SPR wouldn't be able to ignore if he would just give some information about Nick. Strangely enough, when Ken did contact John Bucknell, he said they couldn't get the drive to work and open the disk, that there was an error, but would not give any information about Nick. The whole experiment fell through. Amongst this chaos was an additional message from an author they didn't recognize. Ken and Debbie supposed it was this character, Juan. A few days before, Nick Sowerby Johnson, Dave Welch, and John asked a question about a constellation, and this was the reply. Dave and John observe, bottom right-hand region of the southern hemisphere near to the central equator. Seventh celestial body in the definite constellation could soon be a quasar. This message was unsigned. All of 2109's messages were signed, 2109, and this message seemed different in tone. In standard English, perfectly spelt, less aggressive. But who is this one? Towards the end of the vertical plane, Lucas discloses some more information about one and the delivery of the leams again. I saw a green light shining from the walls of my chimney, and from this light stepped forward what I thought was the devil himself. I never feared for my soul so much in my life, but so afraid was I that I couldn't move away from this strange messenger. He said, Fear not, good Thomas. You are starred to be a great man. If you do not have fear, but keep your faith strong. Lucas claimed that Catherine could not see one or the leams, noticing that as Catherine walked past the computer singing, the screen would reveal her words, and this, it seems, is how Lucas first communicated with Ken, Debbie, and Peter. Not typing, but speaking to the screen. What's also interesting is that one enters from the chimney, which is how Debbie arrives in her dreams. Lucas begged Ken not to communicate any more with 2109. In fact, 2109 and one have an altercation which again is redolent of something out of a bad sci-fi film script or even at times the movie Mean Girls. The following message is from 1 to 2109. 2109, 
Poor, poor Jack in the box. What will he do without his spring, now that he'll never be able to perform for the children? Oh, and how the children will cry. And 2109's response. One, we presume? Cut the cryptic cryptic. You're too obvious anyway. Trying to play the brave Samaritan, eh? Revert to cipher. You're just confusing 1985E. They know not to trust you. In the vertical plane, Ken supposes that this was one taunting 2109 about the SPR episode and that the spring they are now without is 2109 unable to catch the questions SPR loaded onto the disc. The last message from one was interesting. Your English is appalling. Don't you have any other purpose than to lecture this kind with extensionalism and quantum physics? What a meaningless existence. But it's cipher, then cipher it is. If you can keep up with me, not this frequency range. Could one be the one in 2109? He seems to have instigated all of this. Was it planned? Was he supposed to? Is he a rebel? The one to break away from 2109? Who knows? Who were these things? From the year 2109? Aliens. Does your head hurt right now? Well, sip a glass of water, because there's more twists to the tale yet. Firstly, around this time, Lucas reveals that his earlier messages were not the ones he originally sent, that they had been tampered with, which goes some way to explaining some of the historical errors which flummoxed Ken, Debbie and Peter, particularly regarding Edmund Gray. Debbie has dreams throughout most of 1985 where she is able to communicate with Lucas. The one at this time, in the November, is perhaps the most interesting. During her visitation to Lucas, Debbie gets to see 16th century Doddleston. She describes a beautiful scene of hundreds of vibrant wildflowers. The only thing familiar to her is the bright blue sky. She recounts a moment where she sees a man on a cart and horse coming towards the cottage. She panics, thinking that the man might see her. Lucas greets the man, and the man comes up to them. It is apparent that the man cannot see her, but the horse can see or sense her as he whinnies in fright, giving a whole new meaning to the idea of ghosts. Are we all ghosts to someone? In the middle of January 1986, Ken and Debbie decide to resume communications with Lucas and 2109 now that Lucas's time freeze has thawed. It's at this point they go for a coffee with Peter, and Peter asks Ken if all of this could be him telepathically creating the messages. This didn't go down too well, and Ken even began to question it himself. Frank Davies also wondered if 2109 were making it all up, that they had created Lucas, which pained Ken as he loved Lucas and felt their friendship to be a profound one. Out of everything, it was the one thing he believed in. 
2109 was something of a publicist too and insisted Ken go to the press and tell all. Most people around him thought this ill-judged, but nonetheless, the local paper did do a story. Weirdly, Ken avoided any details about 2109 and just focused on the communication between him and Lucas. A former student was the journalist, and he was able to contact John Bucknell at the SPR, who concluded it was a hoax, which was news to Ken and Peter, although Peter, at this point, was much more open-minded about this possibility. John Bucknell's conclusion? It wasn't paranormal, and that someone or something is doing it. Not surprisingly, Ken felt somewhat deflated about this. When Ken does eventually contact the SPR, he finds out that John Bucknell has left and, chillingly, brace yourself for this, they had no record whatsoever of Dave Welsh or Nick Sowerby Johnson. So who were they? And what were they doing? Ken and Debbie felt chilled to the bone, understandably not knowing who they were dealing with and who was in their home unnerved them. Ken still desperately wanted a reputable researcher to help them make sense of it all. Yet again, unbelievably, 2109 had a very specific request on this front. We ask you to do the following. There is a brilliant researcher, ufologist. We know you don't like the word. His name is Gary M. Rowe. His ideas differ to yours. But nonetheless, he can help with a couple of your problems. They then tell Ken that Gary Rowe lives in Rill. They unbelievably provide his telephone number and request that Peter makes the call, not Ken. And so, yet again, we have another character enter stage left, Gary M. Rowe. The trio meet him again at Peter's house. They find him an understanding fellow and Ken thought he was pretty smart. But he had this uneasy feeling in the pit of his stomach. In February, Gary M. Rowe arrived with all sorts of equipment to record anything which could happen around the computer. And nothing did. Debbie wrote of her frustration, but 2109 retorted. The experiment will continue without Thomas for the time being. We shall watch and react accordingly in the vertical plane. Greetings, Gary Rowe. Your move. We are only here to aid the experiment. We mean your kind no harm. Gary Rowe wanted to communicate with 2109 via a sealed envelope, and he asks 2109 if that is possible. They tell him it is possible but that they would prefer it if he typed on the program Edward and that geographical location is important. Cryptically, they also state that Gary has seen their work in Canada. When questioned, Gary wouldn't reveal anything. Ken was getting the impression he was in the way, just a little go-between. In fact, 2109 tell him as such and then patronizingly message Thank you. We do notice your hard work. Ken left the sealed envelope on top of the computer 
with Gary Rowe's questions inside. Somewhat astonishingly, the envelope did disappear. What followed is a message to Ken from 2109, telling him they were going to print out a response to Gary, but, rather absurdly, he must have his back to the printer as it printed and not to look at the contents when he placed it inside the envelope. Ken wasn't allowed to post the envelope to Gary, so what followed was a rather clandestine, shabby meeting with Gary in a smoky pub in Rill. Imagine, if you will, the scene Ken bitterly describes. The metal on the jukebox, the sticky floors, and Gary with his back to them sitting in a corner with brill-creamed hair and in a 50s suit. Ken and Debbie sit opposite him and anxiously pass him the envelope, watching him as he surreptitiously opens it. Yet when he does, his disappointment is there for all to see. We're dramatising the conversation here, but it went a little like this, although the dialogue is word for word from the book. I need hard information quickly, Gary says, almost out of the corner of his mouth barely audible. What do you mean? Ken asks, and Gary furtively looks around the pub and whispers, I'm making myself quite vulnerable in writing to them. They're more important than I realised. And with that, the meeting in that awful pub in Rill is over. Ken, angry, fed up, frustrated, gets the hell out of Rill. Again, with more questions than answers, with a feeling they were starring in an intergalactic farce. More messages appear from 2109, more odd instructions to Ken, ordering him to stand with his back to the printer, practically spitting out from the screen a warning. It's all on you, Ken. More envelopes exchanged, a telling off for not leaving paper out, more strange head nods and polite refusals from Gary to provide any information. More bullying behaviour from 2109, with baleful responses if either Ken or Debbie asked what was going on. They were told it's nothing to do with them, with such retorts as Why should it be all for your benefit? And also The communications between 2109 and Gary are of no interest to you. The only thing Ken and Debbie could deduce is that Gary was unhappy with the information he was getting. He seemed wary, repeating that 2109 were more important and powerful than he first thought. Ken and Debbie's dealings with Gary concluded in a strange episode where Gary placed a flattish object in an envelope for 2109. Debbie felt uncomfortable with the envelope as drawn on the outside of it was an Egyptian deity and she felt it odd and eerie and in her words from the vertical plane she felt that Gary was introducing an occult element to the communications. Gary hoodwinked them a little by placing the envelope with the deity inside a bigger plane envelope. Ken and Debbie didn't like it and never passed on the envelope. In fact, they gave it away. 2109 still raved that 
Gary will serve his purpose. Indeed, he does. He still rather generously talks about it and has infamously responded at some great length on a blog thread. And interestingly, so has Debbie. 2109 tell Ken and Debbie that they haven't got long left with Lucas or Thomas, that the experiment in communications will end for all of them. Thomas tells them that in a few days he will be leaving for Oxford and regales stories about his teacher, Lucas, telling them with some delight that it was his name that he used as a pseudonym. He tells them of Grosvenor's plans to have the cottage that he will likely burn the place to the ground because he suspected it was a place of wickedness and sorcery, but would use the land. Touchingly, these are his last words. I will write my book about my brothers and maid, and of the end of Lucas and the little puppy, and of our love for each other. One day, you will all sit down at my table for wine and meat by the river in Oxford, where we shall speak of truth and good men. In your time, my book is old, but I shall not go to my God until it is written. Then we shall be truly embraced. My love to you all, I shall await you in Oxford. Thomas Harden. 2109 also bid goodbye. It's a long and odd message with references to the first ever message on the computer. It goes as follows. Ken, Debbie, Peter. True are the nightmares of those that fear. What will be your reality if you let it? Believe in yourselves. Safe are the bodies of the silent world. As long as your kind cannot penetrate our world, we are safe. Turn, pretty flower, turn towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow. But the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Knowledge will be your progress, but your kind are coming close to getting their fingers burnt. Indirectly, you may prevent this. Get out your bricks. Get ready to build. Write the book. Pussycat, pussycat, went to London to seek fame and fortune. Ending with... There is another person to come. They will be the help we need. You will know them when they come. Thomas did eventually write his book and soon died shortly after. He placed it in a secure place. It shouldn't take too many to find it, though he wrote it in Latin with the help of a friend that he met in Oxford. The inscription reads, Me writes this in the hope that my fellows will one day find this book. 
then may other lands be not so distant. We will finish now. You have a lot of work to do. There is no need for you to ride back, as we will have gone. Thank you for your cooperation. 2109. 2109's tone seemed to have softened and is encouraging, although final in its tone. And by all implications, Thomas did write his book and is out there somewhere. And that wasn't the last time Ken heard from 2109. Like a shadow, they seemed to be lurking for quite a few more years just waiting for Ken to slightly scratch the surface, to summon them, and they will appear. A couple of years later, a friend of a friend was so intrigued by the story, she asked if she could have a go at contacting them. Ken still had the BBC locked away somewhere, but reluctantly agreed. His friend bitterly regretted it. 2109 immediately replied to her, and what was said on the screen made her faint. She never revealed what it was, absolutely refusing to. It was this that made Ken give up the BBC for good, and he gave it to Debbie's mum, who locked it away. But still it felt like 2109 were not too far away, looking for Ken still. As much as they found him useless in their plans at times, in 1987, a woman from Luxembourg wrote a letter to Ken with a printout, which had a message from a 2105, and it said, Contact Ken Webster. During holidays, much importance. 2105. Ken did end up meeting with the harsh fishbacks, from Luxembourg when they came over for a holiday in South Wales. They were able to provide him with further information. They had been in contact with someone called the technician on the computer. They asked the technician if they knew any more about the communications between 2109 and Ken Webster, and the technician was able to tell them that there was an overlap of time between Ken's dimension and Thomas Harden's in the 16th century. The harsh fishbacks asked if this experience was an insight into the Akashic record where everything that has passed and is yet to come is recorded. The technician said it was similar to that, yes, but he mentioned that some documents from the experience at Doddleston will be found which will provide some kind of proof but they wouldn't be found by Ken, but by others. Quite frankly, Ken just did not want to go there. And who can blame him? He didn't pursue it any further, but felt strangely reassured by it. In the 1996 program Out of This World, there are some facts outlined which are worthy of note. Dr. Laura Wright, a professor from Cambridge University, at this time claimed that there is no way that Lucas's messages could have been written in the 1540s. His verb use completely incorrect for the period and in her judgment, a very poor imitation of early modern English. 
Dr. Wright analyzed Ken's writing from the vertical plane, together with a sample of Lucas's messages, and found a startling similarity. Both use an adjective before a noun 26% of the time, which is apparently a notable comparison. To make it fair, she also compared some journalism and a romantic novel written in 1986, where she found the use of an adjective before a noun, which ranged from 32 to 35%. Perhaps giving credence to the theory that these messages were a splinter of Ken's personality, or an elaborate forgery by Ken. Or perhaps, rather touchingly, Ken and Lucas were mirroring and mimicking each other, as they so often did in the story. What struck me when reading Wan's frustrated, angry messages with 2109 is that they are eerily similar to Ken's exasperation with 2109. Is Ken one? That's quite a thought. After all, Ken did bring the computer into the cottage, just as one did to Thomas. In the documentary, although we never see their faces, Ken and Debbie seem warm and genuine. It's not hard to believe their experiences. They received 300 messages over 16 months. Debbie stresses that whilst a lot of people focus on the paranormal aspect of the story, at heart, it was a very human and touching communication with a real person living 400 years ago. Ken echoes Debbie's thoughts and hopes that one day Thomas's book will be found. Peter Trinder argues that it was very convincing at the time, that the language used did seem authentic, and he is vehement in his refusal to believe that it was Ken or Debbie, arguing that if it wasn't real, it would have taken a tremendous amount of effort. He ends by saying, quote, If it was a hoax... By God, it was brilliant. End quote. And if anything, I think we can all agree that it is an impressive, rather brilliant story. A fall through a crack in time into the vertical plane. And to borrow a phrase from Ken, who borrowed the phrase from Sir William Crooks, I didn't say it was possible. I said it happened. Ken and Debbie have now shut this storybook closed and like the old BBC microcomputer, they've put it somewhere, locked it away. It's not something either of them would like to discuss anymore. They are very private and have distanced themselves from the story. However, while that chapter may be closed for them, and we must respect that, it's a storybook that keeps opening and much like the work of a poltergeist, it flies off the shelf, lands at our feet, its pages fanning out in the air of our attention, desperate for us to pick up and read aloud. And so, if you have any further information about this story, if you perhaps say, have been communicated by a 2109, 2105, or 210-something, then please contact us. After all, there's always time for a part three. 
And so, it just remains for me to say, be careful. The next time it's a beautiful day, the height of summer, and you decide to indulge in a spot of gardening, you dig through some soft soil and you hit upon something lumpen, solid. You pick it up using both hands and you're shocked to discover that it's a manuscript sodden with centuries of rain. The words a smudge of ink but just about legible. You brush off the encrusted sandstone, the scurrying ants, and you stand there in awe for you can just about make out a dedication and it reads to my brother Ken and the sweet maiden Debbie and you know what it is now and the person to find the best source of evidence of communication through time is you do you have an interesting story which you'd be willing to share with the show? If so, your story could feature in our end-of-season listener stories episodes. Please get in touch with the show via email at contactus at hauntedukpodcast.com, marking the subject as listener story. We're waiting for your stories. As well as coffee, you can also follow the Haunted UK podcast on Twitter at Haunted UK Pod and on Instagram at Haunted UK Podcast. You can also find us on our website at www.hauntedukpodcast.com where you'll be able to keep up to date with news and announcements, browse and download our episode scripts, get in touch with us and much, much more. This episode was presented by Steve, produced by Pink Flamingo Home Studio, which you can also find on Instagram by searching for at Pink Flamingo Home Studio. The script for this episode was edited by Marie Waller Proofreading. For more information about this service, contact Marie at mariewaller.proofreading at gmail.com. For a list of all research sources which we found helpful for the writing of this episode, please see the show's notes. Thank you again for listening to and supporting the Haunted UK podcast. So until the next episode, stay safe and take care. <laughs>